G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the preliminary finals preview edition. What a wonderful weekend of footy we have ahead of us. Two huge preliminary finals, Melbourne taking on Geelong, Port Adelaide taking on the Western Bulldogs. We are here to discuss them in full detail and as usual we are always here courtesy of our proud podcasting partners Palmerbet. play the punting advantage this footy season always remember to gamble responsibly as i say very good morning to my preliminary final preview edition co-host mark fine how are you going Fine? yeah i'm well look rowan how can you not be excited about the preliminary final matchups, given that these four teams met in the same order. We've had a preliminary final preview of both games in the final round of AFL football, and they were nail-biting rippers. I mean, how can't you look forward to the rematches of those two games? That's a very good point. Uh, as a form guide uh, and as an appetizer, uh, I wonder if that's ever happened before. I think it's probably pretty unlikely. So, uh, look, they call preliminary final weekend or often have called it the People's Grand Final. Uh, sadly, we won't be experiencing that at the MCG this year for obvious reasons. But we do have two fantastic venues hosting the games. Uh, Optus Stadium and Adelaide Oval, wonderful, wonderful venues uh, for all sport, not just for football, and uh, certainly no bitterness from us Melburnians about such great uh, venues and such great football heritage cities hosting the second biggest games of the weekend. Uh, I'll tell you what else we're really proud of in these parts, Finey. And that is a couple of wonderful companies which have been sponsors of ours for a long time. You couldn't have said it better, Rowan. Absolutely not just proud, beaming with respect and just gratitude for these two companies. And the beauty is that they're not a hard sell. So when we say head down to 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, for a burger that you're going to love, we do so. Yeah, of course, as a sponsor, out of respect for them. But we do it confidently, knowing that we're not going to get negative feedback and say, why did you send me down there? Because over the years, all we've had is just a great response from our listeners who've taken up the uh, challenge, not just challenge, the, the idea of going to Andrew's Hamburgers. And they've all, to a person, said, you're right, it's just a great feed. Now, of course... A bit harder to say that we've got a legion of listeners who built new houses, but you only need to look at the quality of the product that West Point Properties put out with Nick Spartels and the team to know that any of our listeners 
who use their services would be equally impressed. And I must say, part of that team at West Point Properties is somebody who had a pretty famous role to play on preliminary final day. Or not, back in 2005. The Goose, Matthew Maguire, of course, part of that highly controversial moment when he was struck behind play by Barry Hall. So a bit of football preliminary final history as part of the West Point property team. And another proud partner of this podcast, uh, Stats Insider, a sports and data-driven industry leader providing model projections and analysis for more than 15 sports across the world. And that includes this season's NFL season, which kicks off on Friday and where the futures model currently has the Kansas Chiefs as a 14% Super Bowl favourite. Stats Insider simulates an event 10,000 times to best understand both the range of possible outcomes and the probability of each result. Along with their famed pre-match and in-game projections, Stats Insider is also known for their full-season AFL projections, which now include this year's Brownlow medal, and in which Marcus Bontempelli has a 23.3% chance of becoming the 11th Bulldog to ever win the award. They certainly have had their share of Brownlow winners. Stats Insider, also home to some of Australia's best independent sports writing and analysis. Everything's free to use on site, so check them out at statsinsider.com.au and give them a follow on Twitter at Stats Insider. All right, we've got two massive preliminary finals to preview, but first, there's a whole heap of footy news happening and we're right across it. On Footyology, Newsfeed. Well, no doubt what the biggest footy news story bubbling around this week has been. And, uh, wow, a double whammy for the poor old Brisbane Lions. No sooner had they uh, begun the business of grappling with a shattering one-point finals defeat their premiership campaign over. But absolute shock when it was revealed that Brownlow medalist Lockie Neal Uh, was very seriously considering requesting a trade back to Perth, where his partner hails from. She is expecting their first child. And uh, it's been a very, very difficult haul, as we all know, with COVID. Um, And the Neils are after some stronger family support networks. Uh, And that became an issue this year when Brisbane was away for weeks at a time. So uh, they are pretty extenuating circumstances. There's been a variety of reactions to that news, but uh, fair to say, Fine, he uh, hasn't been a good few days for the Brisbane Lions Football Club. What a shock. And I think that really is what has upset them, is that they had no inkling of this and found out via the media a report on the news. That being said, I I think that really is only sort of um, football posturing. In the end, the reality is that this situation has arisen because I think primarily of COVID-19 and the very stressful situation that it has placed footballers, their partners, young families under over the last two years. I've been very disappointed to read some um, sort of pointed criticism of Lockie Neal and of his partner, 
in wanting to break the five-year contract, not really thinking about what it's like not only to be away from family. I think they understood that that was part of the deal moving to Brisbane, but then to be in isolation away from your partner. So we're talking about Lockie Neal not really being able to be part of this um, early part of the pregnancy and really isolating his partner. And I'm very sympathetic to their personal situation. But just let me chip in, let me chip in yeah. there because I wanted to bring up that reaction. I was going to mention this myself, but two reactions in particular uh, surprised me. One, and you mentioned the adverse reaction, the strongest that I saw, I'm not sure who you're thinking about, but I saw some comments by a former Hawthorne player and now Fox uh, commentator Ben Dixon that were quite scathing. And he was saying he would, you know, hold him to the final two years of the contract and a deal's a deal, blah, blah, blah. Um, you just mentioned they are extenuating circumstances. We're in the middle of a, a pandemic, for God's sake. People have been separated from their families and their loved ones. Uh, the Neils are expecting a child. Uh, I mean, you know, there's professionalism and then there's taking it to ridiculous extremes. And uh, in contrast, I was pleasantly surprised by the reaction of Lee Matthews on this one, who, you know, whilst being emotionally invested in Brisbane, of course, really disappointed about hearing the news, said he perfectly understood the reasons involved. And um, it shows that people, people are capable of change on this one, doesn't it? Because Lee Matthews famously um, had to do without Daniel Bradshaw for a final in 2000, uh, which Bradshaw missed because his wife was having a child and uh, the Lions lost that. And Lee uh, made some reasonably sort of pointed remarks that he wasn't too thrilled about it. So 20 plus years have seen him modify his attitudes. I'm not sure where Ben Dixon is sort of getting off, whether he really means that or whether he's just trying to be another, yet another controversial uh, former player who can be quoted in a variety of sources. But I thought that was really over the top. Yeah, look, I just want to stress that these decisions aren't made lightly. Now, Lockie Neal's partner, and I'm, excuse me because I'm not 100% sure what her name is, but that's not the point. The, the fact is that she understood that Lockie's there for five years. And actually, if you remember Lockie Neal winning the Brownlow medal last year, seemingly how big a part the partners were that night, remember that we saw a vision of not only Lockie Neal and his partner, but some of the other players, Dane Zorko and his partner and Hugh McGluggage and I think his partner, and they all seemed very much like a close unit. But she would have been fully aware of the five-year contract, very supportive of the move because she came over with him. But having your first baby is a highly emotional time for a, a, a young woman and also for the family. And she needs that support system. And this decision would not have been taken lightly. So I am very sympathetic to their situation, knowing that it does break a contract and it is hard yards for Brisbane, who, of course, will be well compensated, I'm sure, by whatever Fremantle can stump up in terms of uh, draft picks to make way and make room for Lockie Neal. Obviously, the thing that people thinking of straight away is that Chera will end up at Carlton. 
Carlton's pick goes to Fremantle and Fremantle might have to divest themselves of that pick and their own first pick to get Lockie Neal over the line and back in Fremantle colours. That'll have Brisbane well-placed, don't worry. Yeah, they played a lot of this season without Lockie Neal and still made the top four. I wouldn't be shedding too many tears if I was Brisbane. They could convert this into a long-term win. Well, yeah, it's, uh, the wheeling and dealing, obviously, is going to be the, the huge factor in this, isn't it? It's hard, pretty hard to see how it wouldn't be, at the very least, a, a three-club deal. I tend to get a bit lost in when these deals get too complicated, but that would seem a fairly obvious one involving Brisbane, Fremantle and Carlton, given that Chera wants out too. And uh, could be a bit of a, well, a... Um, what was a major loss of Frio suddenly becomes a win because they replace a uh, still uh, young um, and emerging midfielder with a proven champion and a Brownlow medalist. So, uh, well, be interesting to see the various twists and turns and negotiations take, but uh, plenty more to be played out in that space over the next few years. And again, Read the reaction. I think we a uh, few people in footy need to grow up a bit about these things. It is a workplace. We're in extraordinarily difficult times. I think people need to be cut a bit of slack about seeking to put their families before their jobs. Um, all right, next story on the agenda, and it's a big one, uh, big for us traditionalists, finally. The grand final start time. Last year, we had our first ever night grand final up at the Gabba. Uh, those of us who are quite cynical about these things predicted that would be it for now, probably seen our last day grand final. Um, the AFL Commission insists that they are still wedded to the concept of a day grand final in Melbourne. That, of course, isn't possible this year, and the two-hour time difference between Perth and the East Coast makes a difference. So uh, a fairly awkward, I think, compromise has been reached, and the grand final will start at 5.15pm Perth time, that is 7.15pm on the East Coast. Now, the other thing about the grand final is you have a longer halftime break, 26 minutes for halftime rather than the standard 20, um, which means they expect a finish around very close to 10pm East Coast time. 9.56, in fact, is the predicted game time finish, uh, provided there's no serious injuries or anything like that, which, of course, did happen last year very early on. Of course, Nick Floston being knocked out and having to be stretched off. Uh, the other big factor here, and I love the way this has been reported, finally, just like, a, oh, well, of course, is the two-hour difference meant uh, it was more difficult to play the day grand final, given Channel 7's desperation not to interrupt it's six o'clock news bulletin on the Eastern States. So really good to know that the start time of an AFL grand final is basically being held to ransom by Channel 7's apparently uh, desperate need to have a weekend news bulletin start at six o'clock. What a lot of crock and uh, what more conclusive proof that the broadcasters hold way too much sway in these things. Finally, I'm dirty about this. I knew it had happened. I'm still dirty about it, though, because they could have had a 2pm start in Perth, had a day game in Perth, 
and we could have had that finishing uh, over in the eastern states before seven o'clock and channel seven could have pushed their news back by an hour i don't think that would have been a huge sacrifice but we're stuck with it what do you make of it oh you've covered it brilliantly i just you know what just i can't get out of my head what 26 minutes. What wankers. Why 26 minutes? Yeah, all right, 25 minutes, I understand. <laughs> What's the extra minute for? Uh, probably a, a medley of uh, Shannon Noll or Guy Sebastian hits. I, I, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I know they're pretty keen to show off the lights. And that was actually given seriously as another factor that uh, Optus Stadium has a brilliant uh, lighting set up and they're very keen that the halftime break um, happens with darkness around so they can, I mean, seriously I love the way people now talk about these things like it's, oh yeah, well you know, you've got to have the halftime show we're talking about a bloody grand final uh, anyway, I don't know I, I raised this on Twitter yesterday and got uh, well, mostly support, but I was held down in various quarters, uh, including surprisingly in some quarters, um, the desire for a day grand final was seen as a very Melbourne thing. So I don't know if footy fans in the other states, maybe they're more used to night football or something and uh, they're more comfortable with that concept. Uh, that could be fair enough. But uh, I don't like we- particularly being painted as a, a silly old fuddy-duddy because I want the grand final played in the time slot it had been every single year until last year. Fair enough. Uh, have we had confirmation of the entertainment? Is it, as I hope, the dew guides and the Euro gliders? <laughs> I do. Uh, look, I don't, I, I, I'm not sure, to be perfectly honest. I've sort of, uh, yeah, ceased to be too interested in the grand final entertainment. I know it's never going to be anything that particularly appeals to me, but that's all right. We're old men now, Finey. We don't get much of a say in these things. Nope. Don't want it either. All right, so uh, a last word from you on this. Do you think there is the slightest possible chance that after these two years, the grand final will be going back to an afternoon time slot? Yeah, I think it will with the MCG. Well, I hope that's right. But uh, personally, I have my doubts. All right, so a second night grand final. Well, to be fair, a twilight grand final if you are watching it in Perth. All right, uh, the ongoing soap opera, that is the Carlton Football Club. Uh, Boy, this uh, search for a coach is starting to look pretty torturous. Uh, Of course, the preferred candidates, uh, Alistair Clarkson and Ross Lyon, have officially scratched themselves. Another candidate officially scratched himself the other day, and that was Justin Lepich who appears set to join his former Brisbane teammate Craig McRae in an assistance role with Collingwood. Brad Scott's name keeps getting thrown up, but he has been linked to the AFL football operations role, which still hasn't been filled after uh, more than a couple of months now. So that's one to watch with interest as well. Uh, The... I guess their usual suspects now, the names being thrown up now, potentially as Carlton coach are Adam Kingsley, who only narrowly missed out on the Collingwood job. Jamie Graham, the uh, Perth coaching identity, not very well known at all in these parts, but very highly regarded over in the West. And then the likes of Adam Uze, Blake Carousella, 
uh, Daniel G in Syracuse, and Jared Schofield, an interesting one, who also has plenty of respect in the coaching world uh, in both Perth and Adelaide. Um, well, Carlton created a, a rod for their own backfinding by coming out and saying they were after an experienced, bigger-name candidate, uh, problem being that there don't appear any of that type available. Rowan, they've actually publicly stated that they were keen on a coach who had a track record and previous success at the highest level. Do you not find that, again, sort of out of step with the modern game, given, and I'm pretty sure I'm right here, there's only one coach currently at AFL level who had previously coached at another club. And interestingly, that club was Carlton, his previous club, that he got unceremoniously sacked from, and that still rankles with Carlton supporters. Of course, I'm talking of Brett Ratton. Well, it's a sort of offhand comment you make when you uh, put the cart before the horse and clearly expect to land either Alistair Clarkson or Ross Lyon. And when you miss out, you risk making yourself look pretty silly. That said... Um, you know, I mean, we, we've seen other coaching uh, roles filled with people who weren't the first, necessarily the first choice for the job but worked out brilliantly. I mean, it would be very Carlton, actually, for this to have gone uh, completely awry as it has, but then um, just by necessity be forced into a coach who ends up being just what they needed. That would seem a very... Carlton thing to do. And as uh, James Rosewarn pointed out in a, a good piece for Footyology this week, which uh, is still up there and you can read, um, it's a bit of a blank canvas, the Carlton job. And it's not uh, a job without a, a pretty reasonable prospect of eliciting plenty of improvement. They've got some of the best young players in the competition. There's a bit of work to be done, but they're far from a basket case. Whoever it is would be taking over. So uh, wouldn't it be funny, funny if uh, the likes of a Kingsley or an Uze or a, a Carousella ended up getting this job? It's not what Carlton set out to get, but it ends up being uh, the perfect appointment for them. I think whoever's in the sort of frame for taking this job would have no concerns with the playing list. You rightly point out, Sam Walsh, Harry Mackay, I'd have them as two of the top five young prospects in the competition. Jacob uh, Wiedering? Less so, but very capable. Charlie Curnow makes a very interesting return to football at the end of this season that would be tempting for any coach to ponder what glories lie ahead with a forward line of himself and Harry Mackay and co. So I don't think the problem is on field. I think any reservations that are held about heading down and taking up the senior role of Carlton would surround who your bosses are rather than who your employees are. Well, plenty to be played out there. Uh, the panel selected to select the coach um, have been given the time they need to uh, get that in order. Uh, I guess it's not completely unusual these days for coaches to be appointed late in the piece. Remember Beveridge, Luke Beveridge, being appointed, uh, I think it was into November when uh, the Bulldogs finally appointed him for the 2015 season. So 
Uh, let's see what the Blues do in this space, but um, expect to see a wide array of names being thrown up as the possible replacements for David Teague. Just to finish off the news segment, finally, it's that time of the year when uh, clubs review the lists and start uh, wielding the axe metaphorically and uh, literally probably wielding the red pen to cross out this name or that name. And Hawthorne is part of that equation at the moment. The Hawks aren't messing around with their list, uh, announcing the other day five players not being offered contracts for next season. Those players are Keegan Brooksby, James Cousins. Uh, That one surprised me a bit because he's played plenty of senior footy. Damon Greaves, Michael Hartley uh, and Harrison Pepper. Remembering, of course, they already have retired players in Sean Burgoyne, and Jonathan Patton and Tom Scully, all of whom, the latter two, even though they barely played, were still on the list. So there's eight list changes for the Hawks. Already finding a new coach, Sam Mitchell, not messing around in uh, getting a start on the sort of list he wants to work with in 2022. Yeah, I don't, as you say, Cousins may be the one eyebrow raiser there, but I just want to make a comment on Keegan Brooksby as a sort of peripheral footballer. What a sort of battle of survival his career has been. He started way back 2014, I think, was drafted by the Gold Coast on a rookie list, played his first game for Gold Coast in 2015, over three years there, managed just 12 games, got delisted, got picked up by West Coast, where he never played a game on their rookie list. Ended up in the Sandful, where he showed some form. So Hawthorne picked him up as sort of a backup, backup, backup Ruckman. Played one game last year and it looks like it's finally over, which makes in eight seasons of AFL football, 15 games. Oh, jeez. It is these days an incredibly long time to be on list for that minimal return. It's the sort of story you got more used to hearing in the 80s and 90s, isn't it? So, uh, uh, and I think, uh, I hope I'm not wrong on this, and I hope it's still a case, but I think he is the partner of Channel 7 boundary writer Abby Holmes. You are correct. Uh, Well, they got engaged last year on pretty sure that uh, that's still the case so whether either engaged or married so yeah all the best to the future mr and mrs brooksby holmes or whatever surname they go with okay well perhaps keegan can now show adequate support to uh abby's uh professional career as she's done to him as he's tried to carve out a niche in AFL football. And uh, we're not scoffing about Keegan Brooksby's AFL career. It's 15 more games than you or I played oh, for. Great, great story of survival. I reckon it's a testimony to never giving up the dream of playing at the highest level. Absolutely, it is. And an appropriate note to finish this new segment, we've got two massive, cutthroat, desperate Preliminary finals on the agenda for this weekend, and we want to talk about them lots. Let's do it right now. On Footyology, previews with Punch. The first preliminary final is on Friday evening in Perth, Optus Stadium, 7.50pm Eastern Standard Time. It is between those heritage clubs, Melbourne 
and Geelong and what a cracker it should be. What are the bookies saying? Well, Palmer bet head-to-head have Melbourne. Uh, reasonably warm favourites offering a $1.48 head-to-head there on a win. For the Cats, you can get $2.67 courtesy of Palmer bet. Let's see what Stats Insider have to say about this one. Well, the AFL's best and second best defences meet in a preliminary final for what will be these teams' ninth ever finals encounter. Demons were superb in their qualifying final demolition of Brisbane, producing a finals high 28 scoring shots, helped along by a completely dominant midfield where they had a plus 22 edge in contested possession and were able to generate a massive 68 inside 50s, their second best return this season. Geelong also dialed up one of its better performances of the year last week against GWS. Their 103 points was their best return in a finals game since grand final day 2011, while GWS were kept to less than 50 inside 50s, Geelong's seventh best effort of the year in that regard. So much of this game will come down to whether the Cats will be allowed to execute the kind of game they are so fond of and which is very much possession and tempo oriented. When Geelong have been able to amass at least 250 uncontested possessions this season, they are 10 wins and zero losses. When they haven't, they are just 7-7. So that seems a very significant stat indeed, courtesy of Stats Insider, the team selections, obviously very significant as well. Uh, what are either side thinking about for this massive cutthroat clash, Fawny? Well, Melbourne are in the enviable position. Not only, of course, did they win their first final, they had the week off, and they have no pressing injuries. There's been some media talk about the romantic return of Nathan Jones, of course, such a stalwart for the club. He's played his 300th game, but the former skipper, I think, will have to sit on the sidelines. The more interesting debate is whether Jaden Hunt, who has played most of the season, provides good run off the back line returns. And I guess the player in the crosshairs would be Tom Sparrow, who has been in and out of the side much of the season. I thought he was very good in the first final row and he kicked a goal. He had 20-plus possessions. What did you make of his game? I think he's really added a lot. I think those uh, so-called lesser players in their 22, uh, you know, Spargo is another good example of that. I think they've been fantastic for the Demons and almost the critical factor in making them um, the premiership aspirant they are uh, this season. So, yeah, I, I think Spar- Sparrow adds plenty. I'd like to see him in. The other fantastic story is young Bowie. Of course, he made his way into the side late in the season. I think he's an important element of the team. He's a good, small defender. Does Jaden Hunt force his way back in the side run? Well, I like Hunt. I love the uh, rebound he provides. He he just looks like a a finals player to me. And um, I've always liked his game. I've always thought he's added plenty. I'd like to see him in as well, but someone's got to miss out. I would be inclined to bring back Hunt, perhaps at Bowie's expense. What about you? Um, possession nine-tenths of the law for mine. I think that they've been actually better with Bowie in the team. It's interesting because you're uh, sort of 
expending a little bit of energy to uh, have Hunt in the back line. He's a more vigorous player. He expends more energy, I mean to say, in terms of run and carry. But defensively, locking down on small forwards, Bowie's job, the question is, do Geelong really have small forwards that need to be locked down on? Let's have a look at Geelong's likely changes. There is one. We know that Parfit's not playing again this season. That opens up the door to a number of choices. Let's talk about Sean Higgins. He wasn't even a medical sub in the second week of the finals. They, you know, were hell-bent on getting him to the club. I think he's been okay this season. And certainly, I think he's actually a good medical sub, personally. Do you see him forcing his way into the starting 22? Uh, Well, it would be a gamble. Um, I guess the more important question is, well, he can't be the replacement for Parfit. We talk about Narkel's lack of recent form. So, I mean, who is the replacement for Parfit in your view? I think they've got to roll the dice with Narkel Rowan. Jordan Clark is another option, of course. But I think mm, he's been a bit disappointing, to be honest. Um, it's the run that they need. And I think in a final, you've really got to take players on, at this stage of their career, uh, you've got to sort of throw form out the door a little bit and look at what the player can provide if he's right. And if he's right, Narkel's the obvious replacement for mine. Well, uh, we should talk about uh, matchups and where this game will be won. I lost a quick one for me, vested interest. Is my boy Maxie Holmes going to hold his place? Yeah. Yeah, I thought he was of value, especially... I think we discussed it post-match, didn't we, Rowan? He's an aerobic boost for a young man. This is a side that doesn't have a lot of run in its legs. It's an older team. At some point, you're going to need that run. You're not going to be able to play keepings off for four quarters of finals football. And in fact, in the last quarter against GWS, early part of the last quarter, I thought his ability to run almost goal square to goal square was quite valuable. I'd be very surprised if Max Holmes didn't play. All right. Well, the key to this game for me is definitely the middle of the ground. Now, Melbourne's got arguably three of the best half dozen players in the competition in one area of the ground. That is Christian Petrarca, Clayton Oliver and skipper and ruckman Max Gorn. Uh, the ruck looks particularly interesting, doesn't it? Reece Stanley, uh, a lot more competitive last week. I thought he was quite good against Shane Mumford, but a massive test for him up against Gorn this week. But I'm looking at the two midfields and Sam Menegola, great for the Cats last week. Cam Guthrie was good. Isaac Smith, good off a wing. But I don't see how the Cats are going to be able to cope with the Demons unless they can get far better games out of perhaps the two biggest names in the side, Patrick Dangerfield and Joel Selwood. They're going to dig deep, don't they, those two boys? But you've got two footballers that they're champions, Rowan. Selwood seems to be coming to the end of the road. But the end of the road is paved with gold because, I mean, he's one game away from another grand final and a shot at another wonderful premiership. What a great way to sort of bookend your career. As a young man, he was a premiership player and as one of the elder statesmen in the game. Yes, you look at Oliver and Petrarca and you say that they've got a huge advantage there, Melbourne. 
And I think they do. But what do they say? Never write off a champion. And are we going to write off Dangerfield and Selwood in touching distance of another grand final? Maybe silly. I'm also interested, you mentioned Gorn, definitely an advantage there over Stanley, you would think. It's important to look at who backs up those two ruckmen and a big advantage, I think, for Melbourne because Luke Jackson has proved to be a revelation this year. We'll talk about him as a forward present shortly, pardon me, but I am very impressed by what he does in the ruck, less so Radigalia, Rowan. Well, Radigalia, um, I think his importance might be purely as a key forward because Geelong need to keep Melbourne's defence occupied. And if they only have to worry about Tom Hawkins, both uh, Stephen May and Jake Lieber get far more latitude to zone off and uh, do that intercept stuff they do so well. They're not the number one defence in the league for nothing. So uh, they need to keep them busy in terms of strength and height and uh, just playing more negatively without being able to zone off as much as they like to. So that is a role that Radagalia can play. Down the other end, I think it's where Melbourne gets the edge here. Now, they've had their issues with their defence over the season. uh, Sorry, with their attack over the season. But it's certainly looked a lot better over the last four or five weeks. In fact, they've kicked several of their highest scores of this season over the last month. Bed Brown is a big part of that. He's really helped shore up that structure. Tom McDonald can play a lot better than he's been. Bailey Fritch in superb form. And Cozzy Pickett, his return to form has been critical for them as well. So I look at their defence, I look at their midfield, I look at a forward setup which is far more settled and ticking over better than it was. And they just look like a more even side across the ground for me. And uh, I think that might make the difference. The forward line of Melbourne does have many strings to its bow and they are of various types. Okay, Bailey Fritch is an important one. Melbourne have beaten Geelong twice this year in the first encounter. 25 points, Bailey Fritch, very important, four goals. And his form is vastly improved since then. Who plays on him, Rowan? They've got an interesting defence in that they've got guys like Buse, um, Jack Henry. They are good defenders, but I'm not certain whether they're quite nimble enough for the now very elusive Bailey Fritch. Who plays on him? Oh, it's a tough one. Um, I mean, he's so good in the air and he's mobile. I don't know if a guy like Buse would be capable of handling him. Yeah, neither do I. Uh, and then Cozzy Pickett. Tom Atkins is the smaller of the defenders, but I'm not sure whether he's in brilliant form. I think he's going to have to be the one that keeps an eye on Cozzy. Again, I don't see the obvious small defender in the Geelong lineup that matches up to. On this occasion, maybe somebody like Jack Henry, who in fact is pretty nimble himself, it might be one of those odd tall man, short man matchups. Well, uh, time will tell. Uh, time for a tip from you, Fawny. Well, I think you started your analysis where it matters in the right spot, in the centre of the ground. And, yeah, I'm expecting an improved effort from Dangerfield and Selwood, but not one that can match the absolute peak form of Oliver and Petrarca. 
For me, the overriding reason I am tipping Melbourne, I'll give you the margin shortly, is because Geelong's game style, so defined, is not for mine a finals-type game style in a pressure game against a worthy opponent, against a powerhouse opponent. And Melbourne is that this season. How many finals have we seen won by a high-possession foot-passing game? Not many. Maybe against a GWS, you could click that into gear. But for me, that doesn't read preliminary final football. And that's why I've got Melbourne by an interesting, not clear-cut, 15 points. Well, I'm around the same mark. Uh, 2-0 this season, the Demons' way. Uh, My one reservation is the way Geelong was able to rattle on those eight goals in the second quarter of that game in which they got to a 44-point lead. But I think Melbourne's playing better footy. I think they're back to where they were at the start of the season. I think they're more even across the ground. I think they're the more dependable bet. And I think destiny is beckoning the Melbourne Football Club. I am going for Melbourne to win this one by 20 points. So the Demons for both of us. All right, that is the big Friday night preliminary final. Let's move to Saturday. The second AFL preliminary final of 2021, Saturday evening, Adelaide Oval, 7.40pm Eastern Standard Time. That'll be 7.10 local time. The combatants, Port Adelaide, taking on the Western Bulldogs. And the odds, courtesy of Palmerbet, reasonably similar to the first preliminary final in that Port Adelaide is a pretty warm favourite paying $1.44 on the win head-to-head against the Bulldogs, on whom you can get $2.81. The Doggies officially the outsider of the four preliminary final teams. That is, of course, courtesy of Palmerbet. Always remember to gamble responsibly. Stats Insider, what do they have to say about this one? Well... It's a 34th meeting between these two teams, but the first time they'll ever lock horns in a finals match. This season, the Dogs have played seven games interstate and won six of them, including their round nine visit to play Port in Adelaide, a game they won by 19 points. The Power will bring a seven-game winning streak into this match, which is one short of their all-time record. While the probable absence of Marcus Bontempelli is absolutely massive for the Dogs, Port need to be more conscious of their own ability to take marks inside 50. Port averaged just 11.7 marks inside 50 this season, which ranked just eighth. Well, it's well worth noting that of the last 21 premiership teams, 18 have been ranked within the top four for total marks inside the arc. That's that obviously shines the spotlight directly on Charlie Dixon. He comes into this game having kicked just two goals in his last three finals matches while also averaging just three marks. His likely opponent this week, Alex Keith, has lost just 18.3% of his contested one-on-ones this season, which was the sixth best return in the league. Uh, well, Finey, selection, huge factor in this game. Stats Insider don't think that Marcus Bontempelli is going to get to the line. I tend to think he might. What's, uh, what's your mail on this one? Well, he'll certainly get selected. Gee, it's touch and go, isn't it? 
I'll say this. I don't think Luke Beveridge is the sort of coach that would play a, a, a under 100% fitness player. I tend to agree with Stats Insider, but we won't know right until game time. Or, you know, when they name the teams, I don't think. And they've got to replace Cody Waitman, Rowan. That's a big ask. Um, young Scott was good earlier on in the season. Seems a possible replacement. Mitch Wallace has already been told that he's probably going to be better served looking elsewhere next year for a club. Hard to bring a player like that into the side, really. And, of course, Bontempelli needs replacing as well. Young Garcia showed a bit towards the end of the season. Riley West, another that might come under consideration. It's not the sort of uh, selection problem that you want to have heading into a game against the Port Adelaide. Who are settled, who expect to have Mitch Georgiades back. And I think Todd Marshall misses out there. For me, a fairly straight swap in and out that only bolsters Port Adelaide's claims, Rowan. Well, George Artis was in really good form um, before getting injured, uh, and he might need to be too because uh, those stats inside are numbers on Charlie Dixon, not encouraging. I just wonder if the longer that goes on, the more an issue it becomes for him upstairs in the psychology department. Um, this one's all about the midfield for me and some real contrasts and some real selection issues I think the doggies will be looking at here. So, Bontempelli, even if he doesn't play, he's obviously a massive loss, but I'm still comfortable with the Bulldogs midfield as a group up against Port. As good as Ollie Wines and Travis Boak have been this season, I don't think the power have the same sort of midfield depth as the Dogs. That means a big job for one Port player and Jonathan Brown's favourite, Willem Drew. Willem, no, we're not even going to do it. I'm going to respect him during the finals and agree entirely with you and say that that young man is up for the battle and his body size makes him the perfect opponent, say, to run with the dangerous McRae because he's got a tank as well, Willem. Yeah, McRae, I was thinking about this. He went to Liberatore in the last game. I just wonder, McRae's in such amazing form that he might be the more obvious candidate this time. But... Just read what I was saying about the depth. Jack McRae, Tom Liberatore, Bailey Smith, Josh Dunkley, Adam Trelaw, Lockie Hunter. Um, it's a fair roll call, and I'm not sure Port have the numbers to go around. What they do have, though, is a numerical and uh, physical advantage in the ruck, where last time these two played, Scott Lysette and Peter Adams just ripped Tim English to shreds and Tim English with very little support. Now, Beveridge has been reluctant to throw Stefan Martin into the breach. I just think this week he has to. Why Set and Laddams are, are big and strong and ugly and aggressive. And uh, if they completely dominate the hitouts, particularly at the centre bounces, the dogs are not going to be able to take full advantage of that ground level advantage they have, at least numerically. So, I think Martin has to come into that side. I mean, look, Beveridge has constantly made surprising calls. It won't be surprising, perhaps, if he doesn't pick him. But I look at it and I think, surely 
he has to pick Stefan Martin. What do you think on that one? I tend to agree, not only because of the present problem, which is, as you say, an informed lie set and great backup in Laddams, and all, but also surely they don't think that given how English was absolutely, especially early in the game, given a, the rounds of the kitchen by McInerney, they can't win a premiership on the back of just English, can they? I mean, if they have to face Gorn and Jackson the week after, particularly, they're just in a world of hurt to the point where if Stefan Martin really is incapable fitness-wise of playing the game, they almost have to consider sweet. Yes, well, it, uh, that would be very surprising. Uh, this is a great matchup. I've got a feeling, you know, preliminary final weekend, we often see one game that's reasonably comfortably won and one thriller. In fact, I looked it up last night of 20 preliminary finals over the last decade. I think it's seven have been decided by single-figure margins. So I've got a feeling this might be the close one. They're very evenly matched, these two. Um, they've been strong defensively uh, as far as scores against go. Port ranked third. The Bulldogs are fourth. Uh, Bulldogs have the slightly better attack. They're ranked second. Port Adelaide sixth on that score. Both good contested ball teams. The Bulldogs ranked third. Port ranked fourth, um, et cetera, et cetera. A big difference, actually, and this um, is one of those sort of fundamentals that you don't tend to talk about but could be crucial is simply conversion of chances. And the Bulldogs are the best in the league at scoring per inside 50. Uh, Port Adelaide, in contrast, only 10th. So they can't afford to butcher what chances they get, particularly big Charlie Dixon. Um, I'm going to throw it to you for a tip first, Fanny, because I've got a a few thoughts about uh, both sides on this score. How do you see this one panning out? Okay, here's the problem for the Bulldogs. That forward line of theirs, and Norton, look, he's kicked goals against Port Adelaide, did it in the win earlier on in the season, desperately requires him to have a big game. But more importantly, I think that he can be covered without expending their biggest asset in the back line, which is Alir Alir. Now, if Alir Alir is given the run of the back line, as I think he will do, because I don't believe they need too much attention paid to Shaki either. They can cover him. That's a big advantage for Port Adelaide. Burton was great working off his side in the first final. I'll tell you who needs the lift. Been disappointing this year. Darcy Byrne-Jones. I'd like to see a better game out of him. You mentioned Adam Trelaw. He was pretty ordinary in the final win over GWS. Not so Carl Amon, he's had a great year. I expect his drive to matter. And then down to that super dangerous Port Adelaide forward line. Do the Bulldogs have the small and mid-sized defenders to cover Fantasia, Rosie, Butters and Robbie Gray? No team does, Bulldogs included. So that's why Dixon, he just needs to compete. And he can do that. So can Laddams. And so definitely can Georgiaitis. Advantage Port Adelaide. Home ground advantage Port Adelaide. Port Adelaide to win by 23. All right. Uh, Reasonably confident that the home team is going to get the job done there. Well, this is where I differ. Uh, The scoreline between these two this year is 1-1. 
However, the Bulldog win came at this very venue and the other game was one they led for all but the final five minutes and they weren't in very good form when they should have won that game. That form has come back in the two finals. Now, I do like my history, but I'm just starting to get a a faint sniff of 2016 about these Bulldogs. They're coming from the bottom half of the eight. Uh, they've had one very powerful win in elimination final, which is what happened with them in 2016. They've won an absolute heart stopper. And I thought that game last week was very reminiscent of that 2016 preliminary final win over GWS. They've now got to win a preliminary uh, on foreign territory. They did that in 2016. I think this is a better credentialed side than 2016 and it's also one which was good enough to stay on top of the ladder for I think eight rounds of this season now Port they've knocked over the Bulldogs they've knocked over Geelong but they have had their issues with teams of the same quality Bontempelli is huge I reckon they'll roll the dice and play him but I think even without him the Doggies are capable of winning this is no disrespect to Port Adelaide But I think over that uh, three-game losing streak, we just forgot how good a side the Western Bulldogs have been this season. I've shown faith in them all year. I did tip them pre-season to finish runner-up. That was to Richmond, who didn't even make it. But the Doggies have been a really good side across the entirety of this season. I think they've been a fractionally better side than Port Adelaide. And I think they're going to frank that even on Port Adelaide's home ground. I'm going for the Bulldogs to win and move into a grand final against Melbourne. And wow, what a classic that would be. I'm going for the Bulldogs by six points. Rowan, I've got to, I've got to say, so just clearing this up. No Bruce, we know that. No Waitman. And even without Bontempelli, your faith is unwavering. Yep. Wow. Okay, great call. We'll see what happens. All right. Uh, That is the two preliminary finals previewed in some detail, but not the end of the show because we talk about the great moments in football history on a weekly basis. We all love this segment, preliminary final week, often called the People's Grand Final. There have been so many classic preliminary finals played over the years. I think it's time we went back and had a look and a couple of other preliminary final classics. Fantastic footy flashbacks. So many great preliminary finals to choose from. Uh, we've decided to go with a couple involving a competing team from this weekend. Well, Where did it all start for the Cats? This golden era now gone some 15 seasons. It was back in 2007 and the Cats on their way to that long-awaited flag steamrolled through much of the final series. They beat North Melbourne by over 100 points in a qualifying final. They would beat Port Adelaide in a grand final by over 100 points. In between, however, they had the closest of close shaves. It was a preliminary final against Collingwood. The Pies rank outsiders coming from the bottom half of the eight, but having got a huge shot of confidence in that extra time semi-final win over West Coast in Perth. 
no one gave the Pies much of a chance, but boy, did they make a classic game of this. Absolute nail-biter. Uh, the tension gripping. Let's have a listen to this little highlights package of the 2007 preliminary final between Geelong and Collingwood. Again, slippery. Otten's hands and knees. Burns a chance here. Hooks it back. It's close. It's a goal. Blake nimble to Rook. He's Whoa. been brought down a second time. They've buried him. After the boundary throw in, Selwood under pressure gets the kick off. And what a good kick it was too. How's that for precision? And he comes. He's got three goals. Oblivious to anything that may have happened to him. Ablett thumps a goal with Johnson. Two goals in 90 seconds. Rock of the target. Scarlet. Didac. Still with Didac. Oh, yes. Of course. He is special, that boy. Davis now Penderbury. On the right leg, looks for Medhurst, Wojcinski, Medhurst still, he's a beautiful kick, Medhurst, he's 45 metres out, hooks it back, Collingwood in front, play on, Aubrey, back inside, Brian, he kicked the goal in extra, oh, magnificent Corey, Brian too slow, cut off by Brian, Medhurst did well, got it to Aubrey, back to Buckley, I think it was touched to Cloak, left foot goes for goal, Collingwood in front. Ottens wins it down, follows up his own ball, still going Ottens to Bartell, and why not? Bartell goes after it, Golsat coughed it up, Johnson 55 metres out, Mooney on the lead. One goal tonight. Every kick vital now, and this one splits the middle. Decides to load up and go high. Johnson's going to be the flyer. Well, he's becoming important, isn't he? That's a big kick. Well, there's Maxwell just got lost. Bartel actually pushed back, and it was almost like he blocked his run then. Not intentionally. Well, he got those two goals in a hurry, didn't he, in the second quarter? And he's created the last one to Mooney and kicked the next one. He's having an impact. The attendance, the biggest since the 97 grand final. The biggest attendance of the MCG for 10 years, 98,002. Thompson can't do much now. Adler gets through. He can do plenty. Books it back. How about that? Come at the moment. Come at the man. The son of the man. So Midhurst directly in front. This is the kick that is Rockers, but it will be in the book if he kicks it. It is his third goal, and the margin will be back to five points. He's got it. Five points the difference. Collingwood need it clean from here. Adlett seems to be okay. Ottens, one decisive tap. Now he's beaten this time. Knocked down by Brian. Taken by Didak. It's inside the forward 50. Bartell is back. It's being held to him, I think. What a big call. Umpire will bounce it on the 50.
Rowan, what a, a, I've almost, I hadn't forgotten the game. Certainly remember Geelong's sort of arrival and they've been there ever since. But it's fair to say, given how terrible Port Adelaide were in that grand final, was this Nathan Buckley's best shot at a flag? They came so close to making that grand final. And of course, this marked the end of his illustrious career. I mean, it's cruel luck. People talk about Nathan Buckley pulling the wrong rein. Actually, when he left Brisbane after one season, had he stayed there, there would have been premiership glory. They talk about the losses to Brisbane in grand finals, but I think this was the one. Well, hindsight's a wonderful thing, and uh, Port had absolutely smashed uh, North Melbourne in their preliminary final win, that one in the order of 70 points. So I don't think that's how it would have been viewed in hindsight, given how terrible Port were on grand final day. Um, perhaps you're quite right. I mean, Collingwood, the Collingwood that won their elimination final that year over Sydney uh, was a far inferior version to that which played over the subsequent two finals. And uh, confidence is a wonderful thing. They got a, a shot of it by winning the elimination beating West Coast in Perth, took them to an even higher level uh, in a preliminary final against a, well, what by preliminary final weekend was viewed as an almost unbeatable opponent. But uh, what I remember most is just the tension. It was just so tense. And those final few seconds when Alan Didak got the ball inside Collingwood's 50, uh, a, a scramble for possession, a ball up called, and, and fortunately for the Cats, the siren going, I remember the look of relief on the Geelong players' faces. It was almost like that was going to be the bigger hurdle um, than who they took on in the grand final. So dramatic scenes. And, of course, uh, the finals campaign that kicked off this amazing era for the Cats. Can they do it again and have another crack at a premiership? All right, Finey, uh, that was one of the preliminary final teams. Uh, I know your preliminary final involves another of the competing teams. Tell us about it. Well, not a pleasant memory for me. In fact, one of the sort of saddest nights I've had at the football. But St Kilda's not there this year, yet they played a major part in Port Adelaide's famous first premiership. So we go back to 2004 and a preliminary final that had so many memorable moments and elements. This was Robert Harvey's 300th game. This was the night that Fraser Gary famously topped the ton. The pitch was invaded. <laughs> and remember, one of those invaders was the father of a teammate of Gary's, Steve Baker. And of course, a, a famous finish with one of football's all-time greats playing a starring role. Port Adelaide over the Saints in the 2004 preliminary final. Bishop just back on the ground, patched up and ready to get back into the hustle and bustle. Burgoyne turns it over. Ball composed enough. And now Garrick's loose. Will he have a shot? He takes on the responsibility. And that's number 99. And more importantly, number one for the Saints. Well, he needs one for the ton. And he's back in the square as we see the throw in. Kazitsky and Brogan, they're going to be tired very soon. This is played at an enormous intensity. There's James again. 
Clearing kick, doesn't do the job, powers within range, works it, here's the moment, Garrett, yes! Oh, a stunning start by St Kilda. For a full forward, it's a relatively simple task. Fraser Garrick for 100, a moment to savour! Noble and Brogan, and Noble wins again, but to Wanganeen, who kicked the goal earlier in the quarter, surely there'll be a score, there he is! There's a major score! He's given Port back the lead. Prior to that, across the night, both teams had held the lead for 53 minutes. And they can switch it two to Powell. There's one-on-ones ahead. He goes for Revol, who's got to dig deep. He's got to dig into every inch of his body and see if he can get it forward. Gehrig makes his lead, then doubles back. Guerra, the former Port player's lurking. He's at the back of the pack. Brent Guerra couldn't get the boot to the ball. And it's over. Oh, high drama. Port by a straight kick. And they are there. For the first time, the power are in the grand final. Well, more drama there. Um, I've got to say, finally, the image that sticks with me most out of that game is the immediate aftermath. The siren's gone and there's uh, poor Robert Harvey just squatted down on the ground, uh, hands on knees, uh, just despair about would he ever be part of a St Kilda Premiership side. And alas, it was not to be the case. But, uh, gee, that was a fantastic season for the Saints under Grant Thomas. They got those 10 wins up to start the season. They played great, attractive football. And there was plenty of ticker about them too. I mean, even halfway through the last quarter of this game, uh, the power got a couple of goals in front, but back the Saints came again. Goal to Rewalt, goal to Luke Ball, which levelled the scores before that fantastic snap from Gavin Wanganate. Uh, What a player he was for two clubs. Absolute champion of the game. And then... Desperate uh, half chance of Brent Guerra. Couldn't nail it for the Saints and the power. Got through, a bit like Geelong in 07. Scraped through to a grand final and then went on to win a flag, which had proved elusive for them over the previous couple of years. A great choice. Any last thoughts on this one, uh, Finey? Was it the Saints' best chance to, uh, to win a flag? Oh, no, I think that was 2009. It was an amazing night. I've got a couple of interesting memories from it. One of them was images in the Port Adelaide room afterwards. Well, first of all, personally, you know, I was sitting in a part of the ground, well, on the centre wing amongst all the Port Adelaide members, just myself and good mate Andrew Sostak, and boy, it was that hostile territory, but we held our own. Images after the game in the Port Adelaide room of, you're, you know Michelangelo Ricci pretty well, don't you? I do. Is he supposed to be singing the club song with the winning team? Anyhow, <laughs> that, was, that was something a bit different. <laughs> and, you know, there was a player for St Kilda that night. We've spoken about Lockie Neal earlier on in the program, whose career was very similar to Lockie Neal. Something he, he, the path that Lockie Neal is heading down is a path that has been trod before. Do you know who that player was? A player that 
played for Fremantle, came to St Kilda, and because of his partner, returned to Fremantle. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, um, hey, yeah, yeah. yeah, well done. <laughs> as soon as you said Aaron, I knew you'd get the the thought process to Blake. Heath Blake. So, yeah, he played that night. And interesting that that story, the Lockie Neal story, does have a prequel. Good win by Port Adelaide. And they played a pretty banged up Brisbane and won their first leg. All right. Well, they are two very memorable preliminary final playoffs. And, uh, of course, we'll have some grand final memories uh, when we come to our grand final episode. That's the end of this episode. And uh, this podcast always proudly brought to you by Palmerbet. Play the punting advantage this footy season. Always remember to gamble responsibly. What about our other wonderful sponsors, Finey? Beautiful burgers every time at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. More besides, I love their fresh, hot, crispy chips. Real Aussie burger shop style chips. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, Andrews and West Point Properties. Gee, what would you do to live in a house appointed with the latest European mod cons? Eye for detail, magnificent. Thank you, Nick Spartels and the team. And don't forget Stats Insider, another official partner of this podcast, the best sports data analyst in the business. They work with more than 15 sports across the globe and they sample each event more than 10,000 times to give you the best range of probable and possible outcomes. Some great writing on their site too. It's all free to use. No damage done to your wallet. If you want to read some great journalism and check out some very revealing stats, head to statsinsider.com.au. And while you're at it, give them a follow on Twitter at statsinsider. All right, that's it for this week's podcast. You want to catch us again, you haven't got long to wait because we will be doing our post-game live stream on Twitter and Facebook, Footyology Final Siren, on both Friday night after the Melbourne Geelong preliminary final and Saturday night immediately following the Port Adelaide Western Bulldogs preliminary final. So a double dose of Footyology Final Siren. Make sure you join us for that. And the audio podcast review edition, of course, We'll be back as per usual. We'll be recording that on Sunday and bringing you the most fulsome wrap-up of both preliminary finals and a, a bit of a quick look ahead to what can be expected in a grand final, for which we'll have to wait two weeks. So there'll be a fair bit of speculating done in the meantime. That's it for this show. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, good luck to your teams this weekend if they are involved. If they're not, just sit back and enjoy some great preliminary final action. We'll catch you later.